Welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights, the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. What is up? Hey, hey. What's happening, everybody? Knock on podcast. This is volume three from this series that we've done. The last two podcasts were based on Q&As from the Knock on Nation, and I'm going to pick up and continue on that. Um, There were some awesome questions for the last two podcasts, and there's still more awesome questions. Honestly, the stuff that you guys have as topics is endless i could podcast well technically i can't podcast for as much questions as you have for me to answer but the the topics and the subjects are limitless right now so i'm doing my best to pick and choose some topics that i think are maybe ones that are relative to the moment or also things that we haven't talked about lately and things that I think would be valuable for some of the stuff that I know is coming up here uh, in the future. So the first question here is from John, it looks like Yosarian. He's saying, I'd like to hear more stuff on doing your own tuning, setting up your own area and how to get comfortable using a bow press and tips on not screwing up your bow. So this is awesome and completely important right now because obviously with all the changes that have happened with COVID, there's limitation to places that are open. There's limitation to whether or not you can be, you know, be in that place depending on, uh, you know, what, what type of numbers they're allowing in a pro shop at one time. And I know that there's some pro shops that, you know, you kind of have to have appointments only. And yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly a need for, in my opinion, everybody to have more understanding of the daily things that you can do with your archery equipment that not to say a pro shop you know, isn't qualified to do it because obviously they're a pro shop. They should have more qualification. And just like with anything, if you're not doing it all the time, it gets rusty, you know, regardless of what type of skill that is. And with a pro shop or an archery shop, they're doing it every day. So I know for me, when I first started learning how to work on some of my own stuff, if I didn't do it for a while and then had to, a lot of times that that kind of refresher was a little bit counterintuitive because I wasn't necessarily good at that. Um, so the continual practice is is critical, and we even we even notice that here. You know, there might be times where I'm doing bow builds during a certain part of the year. Normally, it's towards that front third of the years when I'm doing a lot of my bow builds. So the repetition is is very high and honestly my hands can just go into autopilot and for example if you're listening to this podcast i did a um an insta story 
yesterday um, about setting up one of the Embark bows. I got a the first production Embark and wanted to set it up and I want to actually take that out for my late season hunt here in Iowa and utilize uh, the backstrap, so the new wrist release. I'm going to utilize that um, on that hunt, so I wanted to get that bow ready, so I kind of did a story of that build. And honestly, um, even though I time-lapsed tying the knock, and tying the D loop, uh, and also the peep, there was they weren't as clean of a tie as what they would have been if I was doing it a lot more. Obviously, coming out of hunting season, I I came out of hunting season. I focused a lot on my fitness. I focused a lot on practice and reps. I've been doing two a days the whole month of December. Um, but I haven't been really setting stuff up, so to speak. So just the way my fingers and hand and eye coordination was working, um, was a little bit slower. And then also just really having to double check myself, um, when I was letting like my bow out of the press and stuff, just making sure the strings were in the string tracks, the cams were in the cam tracks, etc. Um, so yeah, I think there's an importance for you to learn it, but there's also an importance for you to realize your limitations to that. If you're doing it a lot, or if you're willing to practice a lot, then obviously you're way more likely to do it correct on your setup and quote unquote, you know, not end up wrecking your, your wrecking your bow. Um, so the places to start for sure are going to be, you know, you're, you're going to have to have, a bow press that's critical and you definitely want to focus on having a bow press that flexes the limbs and not the riser so the the older style bow presses and this is going back probably 10 years now but i know there's still some out there and i know there's people that just try to find a used press and buy a used press because they think well i'm not really going to use it that much so i just want to have one but any of the presses that have kind of a, almost like a, a trailer jack, but when you crank it, it presses the middle down and there's normally two rollers that go on the riser and there's two arms to the outside that are holding your limbs and you're just pushing the riser down from the center. Or there's ones that have a strap that go around the handle and it pulls straight down avoid those at all costs right now because with the newer style bows that have been on the market for the last 10 to 15 years the limbs are much more parallel than they used to be and those types of presses can certainly damage um, the riser and they'll cause strain on the riser and can cause the riser to bend uh, very it's very common there was actually um a couple years where I was traveling a lot through Europe and just teaching bow setup and things like that um, at all kinds of different clubs all through Europe and through all those places there certainly was times where I'd come across the local club having this you know this community bow press that they had bought pretty cheap. And when I looked at the bow press, I was thinking, oh man, whoever's using that likelihood of them like flexing or bending their riser is very high. Um, and just 
really talk to them about the importance of making the investment of a proper press. So if you get a press that flexes the limbs, what's nice about it is it it doesn't have to move that much for the limbs to bend enough to take the pressure off the string. And it it functions the way a bow is is designed to function, which is the limbs bending as it's drawn back. So the limbs that are made of glass um, are are gonna easily bend. You're not gonna have any problems. So focus on a press like that. The two presses that I use are either the X press, which um, the one that I use is not in circulation anymore. And then also the last chance archery press, I have those as well. And they work, they work really good. Um, but you know, with, when it comes to how to press that, definitely just do a little YouTube searching and, and, and kind of take a look at what that press, how that particular press should be used. For example, on the X press, I did a series of videos um, for that original Express, and I'm pretty sure I'm gonna look here while we're talking, but I'm pretty sure I I have some even on the Knock On Archery um, YouTube. So let me see here. Uh, so yeah, you can. If you just uh, YouTube John Dudley Express, if you're able to get one of those Expresses, you'll see one. And then actually um, one of the Knocked and Ready to Rock segments, there's one called um, Knocked and Ready to Rock, how to use a bow press. And that kind of talks to you about that. Um, But if you surf around some and just, you know, especially on the Knock on Archery YouTube channel, there's a lot of things on there where I walk you through how to use the bow press, but the basis of it, if you're using an X press, there's holders that, that hold the riser where the limb cups or the limb pockets in the riser meet. So at the very ends of your riser, there's the pockets and that makes an angle. You have the holders there and then you move the wheels of the X press up to where they're touching pretty much right where the axle is going through that limb and that way as it pushes in that area it's got support in the correct spot it's it's bending from the pivot point and it's it's being flexed from the position where the axle is is running through and um and that's how that limb's intended to flex now with the last chance archery press uh very simple just has like a large worm gear running through it you just turn a crank and it it kind of just squeezes your bow from both ends and flexes it from um from the part of the limb where the axle's running through the main thing that's important with that is the little fingers that kind of hold each of the limbs and so there's four fingers just make sure those are adjusted to where they're all touching equally before you start to flex it and from there i'd recommend uh just always taking pictures you know get your phone take some pictures always before you end up flexing that and take a picture from both sides of your cam so that you can really see like where those strings and cables are supposed to be in that cam 
And just having that visual picture is really going to help you um, for that. Now, what I would recommend is don't feel like you have to practice on your, your brand new setup too. Most archers have some type of a bow laying around that's older and honestly utilizing something that's old and, and pressing that bow and, and, you know, taking that string off and then putting that string on double checking it with your pictures, simple exercises like that are, are really important because it's just going through the motions, going through the repetition. Now, one of the things, um, which I did, I did this last year, um, when I did like a COVID challenge, when COVID first started, I was doing challenges, um, for people to just do exercises. And one of those exercises was just to tie continual D loops across your string. Um, and so these are all things that I think if you're wanting to learn how to work on your own bow, then take a day and literally YouTube one thing and you're going to find it on our YouTube channel, but YouTube how to tie a D loop. And, you know, again, if you have an old bow, this is awesome. It's a great way to do it. Or if by chance you're going to replace strings and cables or something, it's also awesome to do it that way. But if you have an old bow in the press, you can just practice tying a D loop, cutting it off, tying another one, cutting it off, tie another one, cut it off. Because the repetition of that is really what is going to add up to you truly knowing that skill. So when I've had people um, that I've taught technical training to, or if I've gone and worked with teams and the coach wants the individual shooters and the individual athletes to understand how to work on their own gear, it'll be an exercise where I'll walk everybody through. Here's how you tie an over and under knot um, in order to tie knock points. So I'll have them do that. And then I'll say, okay, just up and down this serving. So you'll have an old bow with a serving on there. Just tie me 10 over and under knocking points. So just make a whole row of them. Let's do 10. And then it's a lot like when I was in shop class and I was learning welding, the teacher would just have us do run beads, you know, just continual, you know, we, I want 10 beads perfectly straight across this plate. And then you would take him that plate and you'd say, okay, here's all my beads. And he'd be able to show you just by how that weld looked, you know, okay, this one looks like you got too fast here. There's separation, you know, between the cooling right here, you know, you kind of st stayed there too long and you burnt it out and you puddled it out. So you'll notice those same types of things if you're doing it. And honestly, this is something that like tying knocking points or tying D loops or tying in a peep sight. These are all things to where if you have an old bow, you can have it on your lap while you're watching a TV show. If you're binge watching something on Netflix with your family, you can have your bow on your lap and you can just work on tying those knocking points and then take a look at which ones are good and which ones aren't. And you'll really start to become good at that. 
the same is true with um, how to do a serving. So um, you can find that as well. A serving is like a critical thing that you need to learn. Really, the, the basic things that you should know is how to press a bow properly. Um, you should really learn where your strings have to go in what tracks and where your cables go in one track. And always make sure um, that you have them in those tracks and kind of pull your string and have some tension on your string so that you can really look and make sure your your strings and cables are all in the proper tracks and maintain that tension on your on your bowstring by pulling up on it a little bit while you're letting that press back down because if you try to just let it down and your strings all floppy and trying to twist different directions you're way more likely to to have a derail or a cross rail um so just always have tension on that string as you let it up and that'll help you but once you have that bow um knocking points you know simple over and under over and under knots for knocking points uh for sure how to tie a d loop and tie it you know properly and make sure it's it's tight and that your the way your loop comes off of each side of that string is correct um to represent like how you naturally turn your hand if you're shooting a handheld release um and then and then like how to tie a peep sight in again this is just stuff that you could practice on a bow that's on your lap you could tie you could tie 10 different um peep ties in a line down the top portion of your string and just take a look at how those are and then work on removing that because that could be something that you have to do later is remove it with the serving same thing i would have a bow just have it in my lap and i would work on putting a center serving on you know doing it for about three or four inches you don't have to do the whole length because the hardest part about a serving is starting it and then stopping it and learning how to back serve correctly so if you just start it serve for about two inches and then do your back serve and then move down the string repeat it or do it again or just cut that old one off um, especially if you use the technique that i show on our, on our youtube um, or on the website you could easily remove the serving and then start again but those repetitions are really going to be key um, to learning this stuff and again if you're not doing it all the time or if you're not going to do these practices don't don't feel like you have to work on your own gear you know because obviously you want your bow as accurate as possible and unless you're just totally dissatisfied with what your local shop is is putting out there for work you know, if they're doing a good job setting up bows and if the people that are at your local club and the local hunters and stuff that you know are like, you know, my bow always shoots good when I go to the shop, then don't feel like you have to be an at-home bow mechanic all the time. You certainly can, it's certainly fun to get good enough to do it, but if you're only going to do it once every three years, the likelihood of you being totally polished and doing a really good job on it is a little bit slow now if you're someone who has multiple bows which i know a lot of people actually that just eat some people just get bow, way more bows than even i have and obviously those types of guys 
um, they're going to be able to work on that stuff continually and you'll get better at it, you know, for sure. Um, when it comes to like the basic stuff, just thinking offhand, um, a really good quality arrow saw is going to be critical to have at your house. Um, an arrow saw for sure. And, a good quality set of Allen wrenches, if not a multiple sets of them, because what happens with Allen wrenches is especially on the smaller sizes, you know, if you start to over tighten stuff and you round off that Allen wrench at that point, you really shouldn't keep using it because you'll just continually round out some of those smaller types of set screws. And on most products that have those smaller um, little set screws in there, you can't, you can't really have an Allen wrench that's rounded out at all, or you're not going to be able to snug it down enough to where it's going to stay in that position. And, and the smaller sizes are always the worst. So have one set that, you know, you kind of have, that's really brand new and you focus on just using on those, those smaller ones. And then if you have one that you use all the time, um, kind of keep that separate, but I do always have multiple pairs of Allen wrenches. Um, you'll need a set of torque wrenches. Another thing that would be good is, um, the, I call them like a stub nose Allen wrench set. So where an Allen wrench makes that bend and it makes the L, um, there's like stub nose ones that have a very short bend and those are really useful, especially around your arrow rest area and working on like leveling your sights. A lot of times those second, third axis, uh, screws that you need are normally behind something. So having that little snub nose Allen wrench would be super valuable. And from there, uh, you definitely need a serving jig, uh, a little serving jig tool, which we have on our website and then kind of the, the most basic types of threads that you would need would be, um, we have a center serving thread and it, we have it in, um, a couple sizes. The most common size is going to be the 0.021 and then also some 3d, um, which is three strands of Dyneema spun together. Uh, the 3d serving, is awesome for knocking points, peep sites. If you ever have to do in the field repairs, um, it's awesome for that. And then some D loop material. Then I would recommend a pair of, uh, like D loop pliers. I like the Easton ones, the needle nose pliers that have the grooves on the end for stretching your D loop. Those are by far my favorite because it allows me to stretch the D loop without putting pressure on the knocking points, which some of the quote unquote D loop pliers that are on the market, put a lot of pressure on the knocking points. Um, and a lighter is going to be critical. I always have, um, one brand new razor blade that's near my bow press, or honestly, I have magnets that are stuck on my bow press. So my lighter is stuck to a magnet that razor blade stuck to a magnet and then my most common allen wrench sizes are also stuck to magnets so that all that is right there and that's kind of the the basic things that you would need um maybe a torch for doing hot melt or gluing in components into arrows although a lot of them now are, are epoxy based and then another thing that could be super useful is um having a bow scale 
a, a good quality bow scale is really important. And then even having an air, uh, a little weight scale for weighing your arrows or components um, is also really good and something that is worth the investment. So that should get you started. And again, the, the key is just repetition and don't feel like, okay, I want to learn how to, to tie a D loop. So I'm just going to tie one on my bow and then be done. Try to find, um, try to find a way, whether, like I said, it's an old bow or I've actually had times where I've taken an old bow string and I've put it on like a long plank and just use some really long um, bolts to where I'll have a bolt on one side and then I'll kind of stretch that string as tight as I can and screw it into the other side so I just have this really long string. Or if you have like a string jig, like a Yellowstone string jig, then put an old bow string in there and then you've got 60 inches of working space to work on, you know, put a serving on, then put on a knocking point, then put on, you know, then put on a D loop. And honestly, if you do what I'm saying and you have a 60 inch old string stretched out, make sure it's really tight. It does have to have tension on there. But, and if you do have like a yellow, like an old string jig type fixture, you can put that on there. And then an easy exercise is just do a three inch serving you know, do three inch serving, give yourself some space, three inch serving, give yourself space and make 10 of those down the line and then tie 10 sets of knocking points, you know, have a little knock that you put in there to make sure your spacing's good. Um, tie 10 knocking sets, tie 10 D loops, and then take them off and do it again. But those types of reps are going to go a long way with what you're doing and it'll, it'll help you tremendously. Uh, next question is from, let's see, sea salt mud is asking about the mental process before, during, and after the shot. So I would recommend if you haven't done it already, uh, I actually posted a couple weeks ago, I posted some, some live practice rounds where, um, I just literally turned the camera on and practiced and talked and a couple of them were live. And I, I honestly, I did it for a few reasons. One of the reasons I did it was because I really wanted to, I've really wanted to put a little bit of extra pressure on myself. I wanted to be able to like kind of feel a little bit of not really tournament pressure, but just like if I go to a total archery challenge event, I know people are watching me shoot. It just applies a little stress factor by knowing you're practicing live. So <clears throat> on the YouTube channel, if you just type in John Dudley live practice um, and coaching, that is a really good tool for me talking about the things that I'm thinking about while I'm shooting. I got to wet my throat people. Um, because it's hard to, it's hard to really talk about the mental process when I'm not in that moment. Whereas in those practice rounds, I talk continually about the things that not only I've felt during the last shot or things that I think about for taking to the next end, but I talk about 
my breathing. So my breathing, my breathing cadence and how that factors in. And then also I talk a lot about, um, just kind of the things that I mentally rehearse to myself. So when I'm, when I'm practicing well, and this gets hard if you're, this gets hard if you're going to a archery shop where there's a league and there's a lot of other people there and, you know, everyone's just having a good time and having fun with archery and, and talking and laughing. Um, it gets hard to like really get into a zone and get into a hyper-focused practice session, which honestly is why, you know, I've worked hard and saved and, and focused a lot of finances into having my own training center to where I can go there and I can hyper focus on practice and, and technique without having that outside distraction. And then if I need that outside distraction as preparation for some type of a stress factor shooting situation, then I can go find that whether I go to a local club and shoot or whether I decided to click a live camera on and, and let people watch me shoot. Um, but I've been doing that quite a bit and I actually have a video that should be coming out next week um, where I did a, I did a full live training session with the new backstrap wrist strap release and I personally thought it was really awesome just because, you know, I was able to talk about what I was feeling while I was shooting. And honestly, I know there's a huge need for a wrist strap release, but I'm also a huge fan of handheld releases. So, you know, I'm going to use the wrist strap release and I think it's critical that it's out there and I know so many people use it. And I think there's going to be a lot of people that I coach and a lot of students that that's what I'm going to teach them with first. Um, but for me personally, you know, I love a handheld release and it's for sure my favorite. Um, so I had to kind of coach myself through shooting this wrist strap and, and getting to the point where it's like, Oh, I'm learning little nuances about shooting a wrist strap release that I've probably forgot because it had been 30 years since I'd, you know, truly shot one a lot. Um, so I was able to talk through that, but you know, the mental process that I have is really going to depend on what particularly particular subject I'm training for. So you've heard me talk a lot about selective cycling and selective cycling is something that I refer to when it comes to practicing one particular thing at a time and not focusing on the whole picture of making the shot, which a month from now I'll probably be shooting and I would probably be able to answer this question better of what I'm thinking about every time, because eventually all I'm going to think about is my shot routine and all the steps and processes through that shot routine. So I'll have focus each and every shot of, you know, my stance, my grip, my front shoulder, my anchor, peep acquisition, trigger engagement, pulling and finishing. So uh, all those things will systematically be firing in my head of each of those topics. And does it look right? Does it feel right? But also, you know, 
hopefully somewhere in there there'll be a subconscious taking control of breathing and then the pace at which i'm engaging the trigger and pulling through the shot so that it becomes very systematic and it becomes very rhythmatic um for the cadence of that shot but for now because i've been hunting for three or four months and i came back into the to the range i know that there's a lot of you know it's just like having having an awesome hunting knife that you take out at the first of the year my hunting knives that i have right now could like barely spread butter on toast because th- they've they've been taken through the ringer and they've been dropped beat up you know rattled around in a backpack they've been you know um bounced off bone or cut way too much hide or you know whatever so just like with that you know my knives need to they need they can't just be honed they need to go down the blade needs to be you know put back on and then fine-tuned and polished so that's how i visualize myself it's like i'm not going to just go in here and jump into going through an entire shot routine and thinking about all these steps the first thing that i wanted to do is go in and just say okay i'm going to work just on power of four so my mental my whole mental thing for the first week was i'm shooting four arrows at a time which is more than what i would shoot if i was just checking sight marks at hunting camps and i'll shoot four arrows at a time times 10 ends um i'm kind of doing it at a much faster pace because i'm not out there grilling hot dogs or well i haven't had any hot dogs but grilling hamburgers and talking to you know jocko that comes over and you know talks about you know hey what'd you see what'd you see today or whatever i mean all that stuff that naturally happens in a camp um it's not like going into a practice range and saying I'm shooting 10 ends, four arrows per end. I'm also like seeing where those arrows are landing. So for me, my mental process for like that, the whole first week was, you know, one arrow at a time for these four arrows that are in my, my quiver. And then I'm going to put a chalk piece for one end and I'm going to do that for 10 ends. And for the first couple days my my biggest thing i was thinking was make sure you shoot a strong fourth arrow because by the time i was shooting that fourth arrow i could tell i was having things break down um but then as i continued on i started to to kind of focus on other things like i would focus more after I was able to catch up to the numbers and I felt good just shooting the 40 arrows, then it's like, okay, I'm only going to focus on from my center line back. So I wasn't focusing. I wasn't worried about front sight movement. I was only focused on that rear portion. And I think that that was critical, but you know, for the mental side of things, that's why I think the school of knock was so good when, when I first did it and I've, strongly considered doing a reboot to it because those things that I thought about each week were definitely things that I was applying to myself and I don't feel like you can go into any type of sporting event with this really broad thing of I'm thinking about all of this there were tournaments that I would go to where I knew for me like for example if I went to a tournament um 
Well, let's see. If I like, if I went and shot the tournament, like the U.S. team trials in Spokane, Washington, that course had the most up and down variation of any course I've shot across the world. And there's certainly ones that are equal to it. But for me, like during that whole event, I was totally hyper-focusing on pay attention to your bubble because it was so easy to shoot on those angles and not pay attention to my bubble. And when you're shooting for X rings, your bubble, if you lose a quarter bubble on some of those angles, it's enough to to cause a miss. So I was just really focused on footing so that I felt stable and, and, and bubble. Now there's other tournaments where, I might have a focus on something slightly different. So I think you should apply that selective cycling mentality to what you're thinking about for your shot, your shooting process or your training um, routine that you're focusing on and, you know, really pick a subject that you know is going to make the most impact for you. I always tell people that, the the thing that I train next is always my weakest link. I continually train what I'm worst at. Um, I want to just, if I can make what I'm worst at better, then I'll be more better, even though I know that's not a, like a real word, but I'll be more better because I took my worst thing and improved that. So, you know, if the worst thing you do is you know that you torque your bow and you struggle with left and right things, then if you had practice sessions where mentally all you were focusing on is the the relaxation in the front hand and hand play, placement before you drew the bow back, you would make so much more progress, not because you were focused, hyper-focusing on all the other things that you have to do to make a shot, but you're also focusing on the things that make you miss the worst. And that was actually something that for Jocko, when he missed, it was always front hand related. So I just told him like, bro, you got to just totally focus on your front hand. Just think about grip every shot. Like think about grip, think about your proper grip before the shot. Think about your proper grip, you know, while you're shooting. And he instantly became better just because of that. And certainly there were other things that it's like, okay, now that I feel like he's done that for weeks and weeks and weeks, and that's ingrained into his head. Now it's become a habit. Now you can focus on some of those other little nuances that maybe they make you miss once or twice out of 40. But if that hand position is making you miss, or like for my, for my case, when I shot an extreme elevation, if my bubble caused me to miss four out of the six times that I had the potential of missing um, the bullseye during a round, then if I can make sure those four did not happen, I'm still better off and not hyper-focusing on the, the one of the, each of the other subjects, if that makes sense. But I would certainly welcome you watch those training practices. I'm sure I'll be posting more, but if you see any of my live training or live coaching segments that I repost, those are going to be very useful because I'm talking about mistakes 
and things that are going through my head as they're happening and not trying to do a podcast on a question that is a subject that isn't necessarily a mistake that I just made. So I think it, it applies a lot better. And here in the next week, when the, uh, the live training session with the backstrap comes out, um, I would highly recommend everybody who shoots a wrist strap, watch that as well. Um, I think that was a really good round and I felt better about it than I thought I would. So I think it's going to be really useful. Uh, next question here is from Corey green 24 says, um, let's see. My dad and I live in the Southeast and we'd like to do a mule deer hunt. Uh, we have never gone on any hunts with outfitters because honestly, we don't want to get ripped off any advice on how to pick an outfitter that is a fair price. And also what states and, and regions do you recommend? Um, you know, there's, there's honestly, it, this is a hard question because there's been times where I've went to, to outfitters that were highly recommended. And when I went there, one person freaking loved it. And then, and then, you know, and I've had times where I've gone to an outfitter and I've just loved it. And I go, I know how the hunt unfolds and I know that there's going to be days where you don't see anything. And then all of a sudden it's going to happen. And I kind of just roll with those punches and I don't let it kind of get me down. And then I've had brand new people in those camps that they're kind of down in the dumps and let the fact that they might have struggled a few days all of a sudden affect the whole rest of the hunt to where they don't really have a good hunt. And, and I personally don't feel like, um, I don't feel like they had a bad hunt because the hunt was bad. It was because they didn't really know what to expect. And, you know, or sometimes you don't, um, you don't jive with your, your guide and little things like that are pretty, pretty important. So for me, the number one thing is just recommendation you know a trusted reference someone that you really know um obviously you're asking me and a lot of the places where i go i just know i know how the hunts work um i know the outfitters i have a good a good rapport with them and that's why i continue to go to some of those same spots but i also know that you know there's times where and just like myself, when I was younger, um, there were just hunts that I couldn't afford. I mean, I remember, I remember the first time, um, the first time I paid, you know, 1500 bucks to go hunt in Pike County, Illinois. And honestly, I did it a few times and did not have success in this County. That was, you know, where, when I watched DVDs and, and all kinds of stuff like that, um, you know, I would see these awesome bucks from the, this, these outfitters. And then when I went there, I'm like, well, wait a minute, this doesn't look like this, you know, monster buck hunt that just happened or whatever. And it was, it was hard to do that. And then I don't know, over the course of trial and error, it seems like you kind of find the spots where the people work well with you, but then also the hunting is good. Um, a lot of the spots that I have are honestly spots where I've found through mutual friends and, um, maybe the amount of 
I guess slots was limited and some of the better places are harder to get into. And I, sh- I shouldn't say better because of like, you know, because it necessarily costs more, but some of the places that I hunt that are really my best spots are also very cheap. My, my hunting budget isn't what people would assume, but they're, they're cheaper in comparison to like what I see other people paying to go do a hunt. And it's just something where I've, I've got to know the family and I've gone there and done that. I feel like if you go to a sporting show, you can certainly find some outfitters at some of those shows. Um, but what's hard is their highlight tapes that they always have on the back wall. They, they make it look like it's, it's awesome. And obviously with hunting, it's pretty rare that it's ever guaranteed. So the most important thing you can do when you find those places that are offering a hunt is really get a reference, get a reference list and call, you know, talk to those people on the phone, ask them what it's like and try to like get pictures of like, Hey, can you show me what you've shot there for the last five times you've went or something and do that type of research. Um, another super valuable resource is going to be, you know, not just word of mouth and talking to people that, you know, have gone to a spot. Cause like one of the places, um, one of the places where I hunt, there's actually a group of guys that come from, from all the way out East, uh, in Pennsylvania. And, you know, this was one of those deals where they actually went hunted someplace else with an outfitter and didn't have good luck and talked to people in the town and, and then, you know, found out like, Oh, this guy does hunts over here too, but he doesn't advertise. Um, he just, you know, lets people pay a fee and then it's kind of a DIY thing. And then you're able to just, you know, go do your own thing. And because there's low pressure opportunities there. Um, so you have those situations too, but one of the best resources right now, um, that I know of, which is awesome. And honestly, someone who I a hundred percent totally trust, um, he's a longtime friend and someone I've worked with someone I really respect um, his name is Gerald, Jared Lyle, and he works for hunting fool, um, which is a really awesome, there's a lot of like hunt. I don't know if they're considered brokers, but they're hunt advisors and you can literally call these guys and tell them, here's my budget. This is what we want to do. Um, you know, or, Hey, we don't have, we don't have necessarily, a a set budget we might want to save for a year or two years to have the right hunt. But this is, this is kind of our dream hunt. And, um, but it's called hunt and fool and Jared is there now. And I know he's a freaking awesome dude, um, gives great advice and I'm just Googling it right now, but, um, their number is four, three, five, eight, six, five, one zero two zero and just look up huntandfool.com. They actually, um, funny enough, I got a text from Jared this morning and what's cool is if you're wanting certain types of tags, um, you know, you can, they can set you up to where every year they put in for those, those points or those areas, 
et cetera. So, you know, I got a reminder this morning, you know, we're getting close to the end of the year and Jared said, Hey, are you still wanting us to help you with all your applications? And it's like, yep, go for it. You know, they keep your credit card on file. You tell them the main things that you would like to draw at some point, or you say, Hey, my schedule is this full this year, but I would, you know, I would like to have enough points for down the road to do a certain hunt. And they'll just put you in only for the points. And honestly, this it's, it's a lifesaver because there's so many different season dates. It's so easy to forget. I do all the time. Um, in fact, this past year was the first time in like, I don't even know how long that I actually remembered to put in for my antelope tag in Montana because, you know, it's kind of at a different time. So that's the best way. And honestly, these guys, I'm pretty sure Jared's not going to work with, um, with people that I guess don't have a reputable outfit or don't get good reviews back from their clients. Um, so that's a good place to start. Otherwise, again, word of mouth is an awesome way to start too. All right, let's see. Let me get here. Next question. Oh, gotta go that way. Um, wait, it's the same question. Um, okay, so the, this is a similar question. I thought it was the same, but it's just similar. Um, this was from Batkin, Batkinson28 and was saying the mental side of target archery and the performance anxiety that goes with it. Um, I've talked about this quite a few in the past, quite a few times in the past. And, you know, when it comes to competition archery, it's getting, it's getting harder for me to like really feel like I'm the resource for this because I've won. I haven't competed in a, in a long time. I certainly feel some of those same stress factors when I go to like the total archery challenge and things like that. And honestly, as I feel like as you get older, you start to certain types of stress factors become like less relevant on your radar. So I feel like, I feel like a reason why there's a lot of archers that really start to hit some super high numbers later on in their, in their career is because they kind of get to the point where the stress factors just don't really apply to them as much because they just, they have acclimation and they have callous, you know, they've kind of mentally, um, they've just mentally kind of checked out of the little things that make you nervous of like, Oh, this is my first, um, this is my first big shoot. You know, this is the first time I've been on a plane. This is Holy cow. I'm around all these people that I see in magazines, you know, all those little things really, affected me a lot. I know when I first started competing, you know, I had anxiety. I had anxiety just the first time I was put in a group and shot with Randy Ulmer. You know, I was like, holy cow, this guy is like my idol. I can't believe I'm shooting with Randy Ulmer. But then after you shoot with him three, four more tournaments and you, you know, you're on the same target with him, then it gets to the point where it's like, oh, I got you again. And you just start to acclimate to that. And that's, I've written articles about just, um, trial by fire and just 
sometimes you got to just jump in and just jump into that fire, take the heat. And just like, you know, just like the freaking uh, Mexican soup I had last night was blazing freaking hot. But once I had it in my mouth for a little while and, you know, my sweat started to evaporate off my brain, then I just started to enjoy the taste of it and we were good to go. But yeah, sometimes jumping in or, you know, putting your toe in that cold pool and not have, you know, sitting there being nervous about jumping in rather than just taking the plunge and, and realizing pretty quick, like everything's going to be okay. Um, that's some of the stuff that I think you just learn with age. And it, although it's something that people try to coach, there's kind of this weird, there's this weird balance of people that are naturally awesome at stuff and they go out and they shoot these scores or they go and compete against people that, technically should make them nervous yet they don't um because they really don't know them yet um and i honestly credit some of my early medals internationally with the fact that i didn't know any of those archers like i didn't know how good some of them were and honestly i felt more anxiety after I got to know them and knew how good they were versus the very first time I went, I just knew no one. And I'm like, I'm just here to shoot my game. And all I did was focus on shooting my game. And I didn't know anyone other than my one other teammate that was, you know, that was out there shooting with me in my group, Um, which that honestly kind of helped me deal with the situation. But when I wasn't thinking about, Oh my gosh, that's, Clint Freeman, the, you know, he can shoot 1400s or, you know, holy cow, that's, that's Chris White, you know, and just all these different people that, um, you know, the first time I went up against Morgan Lundeen, I just thought, okay, well, my next, you know, this, this next medal match, um, the semi round is against M Lundeen from Sweden. I didn't know that that sucker was just totally dangerous when it came to how freaking amazing he could shoot. I had heard of him, but I honestly didn't hear of him enough to where it impacted how I performed. And I think when I went out and just thought, okay, this is just the next person on the list. I really don't know who this is. I'm just going to shoot my game. I, I did awesome because I was just really focusing on what I trained, what I trained to go there and do. And then it seemed like as years progressed, I started to be more fearful of mistakes because I knew that I couldn't afford any. And some of the, some of the times that I, in my opinion, underperformed were because I let my own my own thoughts dictate how I shot and I beat myself rather than trusting that shot that I took there for the first several years and didn't worry about who I was going against because it didn't matter. I didn't know him. I just knew what I needed to do to make my shot. And when I made that shot, you know, it, it seemed like 
that shot is really all you need. If you're to the point where you feel like you're able to go to tournaments and shoot well, and a lot of archers hit this level where, you know, they start continually putting up 300s at a shop and they're winning their local leagues and stuff. And then they make the decision of, oh, I'm going to go to Vegas. And if you can mentally tell yourself, you know, all I need to do, I just want to come here. I'm going to shoot one arrow at a time. And all I'm going to do is focus on my shot, focus on my shot, focus on my shot. Then how you perform is going to be so much better than when you let someone else's like outside influence change how you play that game. Because most of the people that decide to go to a higher level of competition, they're going there because they have the ability to do what you need to do to be good there. But what happens is they start to break down because they're not focusing on their shot. And that's why, in my opinion, the, the tension based activated releases where the shot only breaks when you've, you know, when you've built pressure and a lot of times it's like totally unanticipated. It just happens but you have to trust that I've got so many students that that's all they shoot in competition because I've just found, you know, listen, I know you want to win this event. I know you want I know you're scared of shooting against that person, but the reality is you just have to make shots, like just make shots, let the cards fall where they may. Sometimes your shots are going to be good enough. Sometimes they're not you know, some people that have anticipated shots can just light it on fire. But also those same people that anticipate shots can just go down in a ball of flames. And I've seen it so many times. And I just think for me, and honestly, one of the things that helped me be better as a competitor was consistency of knowing how I shoot and I just got to the point where I was very comfortable with being like, hey, this is the level of shooter I am. This is how I shoot. And I'm just going to like, I'm just going to continue to like put these numbers up, these numbers up, these numbers up, these numbers up. And I'm going to let the other people around me that have the highs and lows, I'm just going to kind of just coast right down that middle point. And there's going to be times where people crash around me because they're trying to go too fast and I just coast across the finish line and I'm good to go. And there's going to be times where, you know, I could have maybe pushed it a little harder, but in the end I finished just behind the person that, that won. And I just got really comfortable with that because I loved, I, I found reward and consistency versus a reward and a prize and it really helped me deal with that stuff. But, you know, you're going to have to acclimate. You're going to have to focus on your own shot. And you're going to have to find your comfort within yourself um, on the fact that you're not going to win them all. You know, most people, you're just not going to win them all. So, you know, be, be content with consistency and I think you're going to be way better off as a competitive archer. Uh, let's see here. Jay Harris underscore four twenty seven is asking as a new archer. Um, let's see. Was some grace was 
some great advice as someone, okay, you wrote that a little wrong. So someone just buying a flagship bow, getting into bow hunting and archery. Um, dang, I don't really know what you're trying to say here. Is a new archer with some great advice as someone just buying a flagship bow, getting into bow hunting in archery that has been bit by the bug. Some advice. Um, okay, well, I'm not 100% sure what you're trying to say here, but um, what I will say, I'll talk about this a little bit. So someone who's getting into archery, and if you are bit by the bug of archery, obviously one of the main questions that you're going to have to ask yourself is are you do you feel like you have to go get a flagship model so you know one of the top two uh probably the top two highest priced models within any type of brand or you know are you able to to do well with another model and obviously this plays into um at least for me with PSE, the launch of the Embark bow is a bow that is $7.99 MAP. And that's a price where, yeah, if you're just getting into archery and you have a, a lower budget, I totally understand it. But this price category for me is a price that gives you a bow that is going to allow you to be as accurate as you can with a flagship model but you're not going to have as many bells and whistles and you're also going to have the ability to improve without having to to trade in or try to sell like your entry level type model and then progress so some of the entry level type models they're not going to let you progress to the accuracy that you could be because there's just there's given there's take and you know, there's given there's take in, in materials, there's given there's take in how the how that cam feels, um, how the the knock travel the tra the cam the performance of it, the, you know, there's a lot of give and take. So with the Embark, I wanted a bow that will allow me to be as accurate as I can with a flagship model. However, there's also certain features that I'm not gonna have. So am I still going to, is, is the Embark a replacement for the NTN? No, I love my NTN. I'm going to, I'm going to hunt with an Embark. I'm going to hunt with an NTN. I'll hunt with an Embark. I'll hunt with an NTN. Um, I love the NTN. I shoot it awesome. It's what I'm training with the most indoors. Um, and actually I'm going to set up my NTN as an indoor bow rather than a, a flagship target model, which is priced higher um and i just i love how that bow feels i like the the adjustment in the cam system um i just i like the size of it more um but the embark is is a really good bow that allows people to get good accessories and that's one of the things that i've said on some other podcasts that i've been a guest on is what always sets people back is when you buy a good product and you have to put different types of accessories on it and you don't buy high quality accessories whether that's you know you go out and just get an awesome freaking gun that's you know a total tack driver 
but then you have to put a $200 scope on it. It's like, man, that's a problem because even though the, the main piece is capable of this, if you only put a low end optic on it, you're going to limit it. If you put low quality ammo through it, you're going to limit it. So all that stuff starts to factor in with a bow. It's the same way. Arrow straightness and arrow weight consistency are critical to accuracy. So if you buy the best bow and just have a crummy arrow, it's autom- like even for me, if I have my my bow that's set up that I know how it can shoot and it can shoot awesome, and I went and got some arrows that had a 3,000 straightness to it, there's going to be three or four arrows out of a dozen that are not going to hit behind my pin. They, they're just not. So automatically, just from the quality of that arrow, you're already limiting what your accuracy is going to be downrange. And the same is true, you know, if you put a sight on there that doesn't have really good micro adjustability to where you can fine tune the yardage, or if you have a sight on there to where, you know, as you shoot it, it can, you know, the pins come loose, or if you have a plastic one to where when you really start to tighten it down, you're not able to, it, you know, it torques the whole site or the head of the site where now your, your bubble is off for the third axis. So if you start shooting up and down hills, you're not going to, you're just not going to hit where you're aiming. Um, or does it, you know, does it not even have the ability to properly adjust second and third axis? Um, and then with the arrow rest, you know, is it micro adjustable? Um, if you're going to shoot a lot or do you have the ability to, to replace that launcher as you start to wear through it? You know, there's just small little things like that. You know, is it going to freeze up when it gets cold? You know, how repetitive is the spring system in it? All that stuff starts to add up. And I just believe if you're going to get a good bow, you need to have good or better accessories to go on it. So, the Embark's price point allows people, you know, just like this one that I built on my social media yesterday um, on my Insta story. And I'll try to save that as well in case you want to go and watch it. But, uh, you know, I've got a spot hog NE site on there. I've got our ridden stabilizer. I've got um, the elevated arrow rest. I'm shooting, you know, our axis the knock on axis match grade. So they're, you know, within a thousandth and, you know, I'm shooting the four fletch configurations that we have for all of our preset jigs. Um, you know, I'm doing that. So everything around that model is a hundred percent in no way going to limit what that model can do. And it shoots awesome. And honestly, um, I really love how the bow shoots. I, I, it's it's quiet. It feels good. I'm really happy with it. If I wasn't, it wouldn't have came out. I can tell you that. But um, there was a comment, you know, just for me to to show you transparency. There was a comment within my post that said, you know, I went and tried it at the archery shop. Um, holy vibration! And I just, you know, part of me wants to know, like, hey. Sh- send me a picture of how that was set up because you know, there's, 
there's definitely inferior accessories out there and there's 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 some sites that i that i've seen to where the the fibers rattle in the cage there's some sites where certain things aren't aren't fully tightened down i've seen arrow rests where the where the where the rest bounces off you know just a the aluminum riser or smashes into its own plastic piece um and or if you have a stabilizer that isn't adequate there's so many things that can factor in or you know did the shop take um did the shop take the bow and and back it out as far as it could so the string's loose and then you know did they add a bunch of crap on the string to where you know it has added weight in the center of the string you really never know you you, you don't really compare apples to apples you know i've seen shops i've seen shops intentionally and this goes back to when i was a sales rep i've seen shops that will have one of their competitors you know if they have a main bow line that they sell the most of and some shops that are smaller you know they want to protect their 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 exclusive exclusive dealership so they might have to reach certain numbers for sales and in order to do that sometimes the other models that they have is just secondary offers they may intentionally set them up to where they don't necessarily feel as good as the bow that's in their shop that makes the most margin for them and as a consumer that sucks um and it's for me so many of the bows that i set up you know if i were which i have if i set up a matthews or i've set up botex um obviously i set up pses when i set up my hoyts I didn't set them up with different types of accessories on there. I, sh- I set them up exactly how I shoot them all the time. And I, I keep the weights the same, you know, I shoot the same type of arrow and it, you're able to compare for the most part, apples to apples, you know, but in saying that if the, like if the NTN or the Embark has a seven inch brace height and someone wants me to compare it against a bow that has a five inch brace height. Well, even if I put the same accessories on them, technically to me, I need to know right away. Well, this is a shorter brace height. It's going to be faster. Um, you know, this arrow is going to be on the string longer. So, you know, it may, it's probably going to feel a little bit different, you know, especially if it's built for speed. So you kind of have to, although you're wanting to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges, there's times where you know you're comparing an apple to an orange and you have to know, okay, I'm comparing an apple to an orange, but at that point, let me factor in pros and cons of each of these. But high quality accessories are really important in archery and i can't i can't say that enough just make sure um regardless of if you're new in archery and have the bug just make sure you focus on you know good accessories um i was actually hunting with a buddy a couple weeks ago and we were in a blind and i didn't really pay attention to like the all of the stuff that he was shooting but he had he actually had an ntn and it was set up really good but then we were in the blind and there was a deer really close and i'm like all right you know you're gonna smoke this sucker and when he went to clip on the string like the deer like looked and i just and and then 
luckily he was able to get pulled back and, and make a shot. But I had never heard like a release and I don't know what brand it was, but it was like a caliper release where he had to open it and then close it again. And it, it made the loudest like click and maybe it was cause it was so quiet, but it was, it was probably the loudest release I'd ever heard. And I thought like, dang, you know, to me that could be problematic in the wrong situation. So yeah, high quality accessories are going to be critical to that. And honestly, it'll, if you've been bit by the bug, it'll, it'll keep you, it'll keep you here. Um, once you're bit too, if you're shooting better, um, do, do, do. okay. I had another question here from C Draper 72 was asking, <laughs> let me see. Is that Cody? Uh, yeah. So, he's asking about shot timing and ways to work on shot timing. So I'm going to fall back again onto that video that I did. I talked in that video about cadence. Um, so if you watch, you know, the live training and coaching session, I talk about cadence and counting through my head. And that really starts to allow your timing to work. Now, one thing I didn't know, um, but some people had pointed out to me, like, when I was shooting those practice rounds, they were, there were people that were timing my shots of, you know, once I moved my finger or once I let off the safety, how long the shots were taken to go off. And they were surprisingly consistent. And if you watch that video, you're going to see that because I was so focused on what I was doing behind the line. So from my center line back, because I was so focused on that timing. And then also, you know, I do have like a mantra in my head that I, that I say a lot and sometimes it changes. Um, but usually I'll say, you know, if I'm in a, if I'm in good practice mode, I'll normally say, you know, I shoot X's cause they make me feel good. And normally just me saying that in my head, as I'm going through my activation and pulling through the shot, a lot of times that shot is breaking within a second of itself, not because I'm making it because I'm within, I'm somewhere floating around that bullseye the whole time that that's happening. Um, and now if I feel, if I feel some form breaking down, I'll, you know, I might slow down for a second and try to correct something. Like if I notice my level is totally off, I may have to like slow down on that pole and get things leveled back up and then kind of start up again. Um, but for the most part, it's pretty consistent. If you have something that you're repeating through your head as you go through, a lot of times that mantra helps things become very systematic. And the other thing is just breathing. And I talk about, you know, I, I draw breath in as I'm drawing back and coming into my anchor position and looking through my peep. And then once I'm, once the target's acquired, my breath kind of the natural expanse of my chest from drawing breath in as I relax that it, my air can naturally slowly escape and I'm, I'm kind of losing air out very slowly so that I'm able to stay steady and I'm not breathing during the shot. And then a lot of times just that escape of that air, you know, I can kind of feel my timing building my pressure building on my shot and my timing getting closer to activation as I'm getting further away from, from my breath escaping. And those things kind of go hand in hand and the timing 
ends up working out pretty good. So um, I'm pretty sure that's you, Cody. And I miss you guys up in Canada. Hope you guys are all shooting awesome up there. Some unbelievable 3D shooters. Cody's one of them uh, up in up in Canada, Alberta. Uh, well, all of Canada, but Alberta is where I've shot against a lot of them. Uh, let's see how to get started with archery resources, used bow adjustment communities to get engaged in. This is from GI Johnny One EA. Um, so. GI Johnny, you're in the best community right now. You're in the knock on nation, man. If you're here, then you're in the right place because everybody here is so freaking awesome about helping. And I know that I try my best to, to lead that front, uh, in helping. So I would invite you to just start diving down the rabbit holes of these podcasts and, um, some of the YouTube stuff, obviously go to our website, knock on archery. There's a lot of videos there too, um, which are, are all geared around helping you with all of these types of to topics. Um, I feel like, I feel like we set the stage as the resource for this topic. Um, that's, that's our passion. It's part of our mission statement. And, uh, and, you know, we're going to continue to do that. We've got some awesome things coming for this next year as well. Um, but I think if you're wanting to understand a little bit more on working on your bow, you know, definitely dive into some of those knocked and ready to rock series that I have. You know, there's one on arrow builds. There's one on bow builds. Um, there's going to be more of those coming. And I think you're going to you're going to like what you're going to start seeing from us. Uh, as we turn this dial up higher and uh, mash the pedal in these categories for 2021. Uh, next question here is the real master blaster with some underscores in there is asking um, the over and under on whether tack happens total archery cha challenge happens in 2021. What I will tell you is I had a long meeting with Sean with tack as the subject um two days ago it was on monday and yeah as of right now um texas tennessee vermont pennsylvania michigan south dakota colorado montana utah and utah that's right a double utah sorry sean if you didn't if you didn't announce that yet um but yeah there's there's plans right now to to do a back-to-back -back utah at the end of july with park city followed by going back to the bird for a super extreme course um which is awesome um tentatively we're planning on um if these schedules don't change right now things look good um you know they've got it all on the calendar and you can go to total archery challenge that calendar's there actually um sean and i have discussed we're going to be doing a total archery challenge kind of a winter virtual winter participation to where we're going to work on some cool subjects and i'm going to give you guys some some cool um shooting challenges throughout the winter and spring as we get closer towards tack so everybody's ready so that's going to be pretty fun and we're looking currently at two four 
probably six to seven of the events we're looking to possibly do. Um, and I know that most of those are scheduled right now to have uh, a knock-on course that we build as well. So we'll see how it all pans out. But as of right now, it's the whole Total Archery Challenge crew is mashing the pedal going forward on this, looking like, you know, that first event is going to be there towards the end of April. So it's pretty awesome. Let's see here. I think I got another question marked. I just I just screenshot the questions, everybody. Let's see. My 10-year-old son is really wanting to get into archery. Where should I start? Would like to get him the best, best youth equipment available. Thanks in advance. So, honestly, the best place to start when you have youth is, you know, try to find a good club or a good archery shop where they have programs in place like a Joe ad program to where, you know, they're going to be able to go and get some of the correct instruction. Obviously um, I'm a huge believer in teaching the right way. And depending on their size, um, the, the mini silverback plus is is awesome. I mean, that's where, like I say a million times, that's where Sharon and little dud started, you know, little dud started when he was 10, um, and had a mini silverback and that's all, I think maybe he was nine and that's all he shot. Um, before that, I think when he was six or seven, he shot and I actually had him just shooting fingers instinctively until he was able to actually shoot a proper release to where I knew I wasn't just giving him a wrist strap with the trigger to where he's just pulling back and, and punching, which unfortunately a lot of kids that start that way, it makes it so hard to, to not do that. Um, so for me, I feel like shooting fingers instinctively is a good way for them to shoot archery. I kept the target big. I kept the target close and would just have a target that was really close to us where he could just pull back and shoot as I was practicing at some of the longer distances. And then once he got big enough to be able to, to hold that tension release, you know, I got him set up where he would just shoot that tension release blank bail and just work on letting off the safety and pulling through. And then I put the peep sight in his bow and just, had him do the same thing where we'd do some practices and you know this is multiple practices where i kept a, a big target close and i'd say just pull back anchor properly put the tip of your nose on the string so you're looking through that peep sight and then just stare through that peep sight at that whole target and then let off your safety and just slowly pull and make good shots and once i saw him get really comfortable with doing that then i added the sight onto the bow and from there on out he's been a rock star um, one of the things I talked about in a podcast that I did with total or uh, with Lancaster archery was I was talking to those guys about how cool it is. Like there's certain shops, Lancaster archery, I'm using as an example, has an amazing um, like youth program. And what I tell people is sometimes, and this kind of falls back on, you know, do I just jump right into a flagship model bow or what do I do? And unless you don't have a worry about funds, 
if you have a budget that's limited, you might be better off getting, you know, that bow that has great features in that middle price category, put the right accessories on it, and then have a little bit of money after to where you can invest in some coaching. Even if it's, even if it's one or two classes, just to get some basic coaching and principles and watch someone, let someone watch you shoot. uh, It's so critical and it'll, it'll really establish a a really important base. And then don't be afraid of um, falling back on just some of the, some of the best videos, honestly, that I feel like I put out there weren't like high level productions type videos because they were real and raw. Um, the archery 101 that I did where I took Tyler Stark, who was a friend of mine, had never shot a bow ever, never even pulled one back. And I took him through the processes of, okay, here's, here's how I start people in archery. And it's a great video. It might be over an hour. I can't remember anymore, but it literally shows Tyler go from never pulling a bow back to getting attention activated release, understanding it, practicing with the string, practicing with an air bow, doing it, pulling his own bow back for the first time, making some shots. And then over the course of the next several days, we work on just implementing good shooting practices. And then the icing on the cake was putting him in a tree stand and watching him shoot a hog at, you know, that same distance, 20 yards, started him close. Um, had him in a tree stand, shot a hog at 20 yards and it was freaking awesome. So that's a great resource as well, but don't be afraid of, you know, saving a hundred bucks so that you can invest in some coaching from a good shop. And maybe the shop that you hear about in your area, that's the best might be a little bit of a, a drive to get there, but honestly you can make a fun adventure out of it. You know, if you if you decide, hey, I'm going to drive down to archery shop, you know, whatever, um, so that I can get him coaching next Saturday, you know, make a make a father son trip out of it or a father daughter uh, trip out of it or a full family trip out of it. And, and, you know, go somewhere, spend the night and have a cool day in the range and learn some some important principles that you can take back home and put to practice. So that's my advice. And hopefully you guys liked this triple header series on Q and A's for the podcast. Next podcast is going to be with some guests. So we'll pick up on some different subjects depending on who they are, but appreciate the heck out of you. Merry Christmas. If I don't talk to you before that, and knock on everybody be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com